Hello, and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for those curious about the non-finance aspects or the human side of working in accounting and finance. I'm Susan Nicriazon, and while I believe there is beauty in balancing a set of financial statements, the intricacies that underpin the workings are wondrous. The real beauty for me is in working with people. The intricacies that underpin our workings are wondrous too. And not one particular combination of input or formula will ever generate the same result. Join me and my guests as we place a lens on some of these wondrous intricacies that make us unique. And as we share insights, knowledge and strategies to inspire your life beyond the numbers. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Kevin Ashley, all the way out in California. Kevin, you're very welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thank you, Susan. Pleasure to be here. Great. Well, Kevin, coffee is one of my favourite things. And there are plenty of lengths I'll go to to have a decent cup of coffee. But I'm not sure I would ever go to the lengths you went to. Want to tell me about that? <laughs> My love affair with coffee probably started in Berkeley, California, back when I was a recent college graduate and trying to save money for a trip to Africa. And I discovered a, a place called Pete's Coffee, which was one of the early roasters of coffee in the Bay Area. And I used to scrape up my quarters out of the bottom of my seat in my truck and always be able to buy a cup of coffee from Pete's and just loved it and became addicted to really good roasted coffee. And so when I ended up in Africa, you know, fast forward a few years later, I was always troubled by the ability to find a good cup of coffee in a place where the coffee was grown. So I remember being up in the border of Sudan in Kenya in a place called Lokichogio and to find a good cup of coffee there, we would actually drive down to the Kakuma refugee camp and buy green coffee beans from the Ethiopian refugees and then take it up to our little camp, a UN camp where we stayed. And we had actually roast the coffee over a little frying pan and then pound it in a mortar and pestle to make coffee. So, wow. so you know, fast forward a few years later when we've started our aviation business and we have a little bit of cash in our bank accounts, we're like, what business do we do next? And we said, well, shit, you got to get a good cup of coffee in Kenya and you can't get one. So let's start a coffee roasting coffee house. And so we went about learning from a guy who roasted coffee for that original Pete's coffee shop in the Bay Area, who ran a roasting training program in the Bay Area. And so three of us flew out to um, the Bay Area and trained on how to roast coffee and bought a roaster from him, put it all in a container and shipped it to Kenya, you know, found our first site for a coffee house restaurant and started building and opened our first place called Java House. And we essentially just built it for ourselves to have a place to get a good cup of coffee. It was really just selfish interest. And it turned out it was a hit. We were super busy and of course, Java House wasn't just a coffee house. It was a restaurant coffee house. So in Kenya, there was also not a good place to go get a good breakfast. And so we sort of did something you couldn't really get away with in most countries. We combined a sort of a gastro diner food concept with a coffee roastery. 
And, and so you could get three meals a day and your great coffee at the Java house. So we opened that first one, it was slammed and we went about, you know, opening another coffee shop about one per year for the next 10 years until we had 10 coffee shops across Nairobi after 10 years of business. And then it got even crazier. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, I love yeah. that. I love the story with Pete in California yeah. as well. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, Sorry if I went on a long version of that. No, I mean, I wish it was longer because there's so many things in there. But first, tell me about the aviation business. You just slipped that in there. Yeah. So my first job, real job I got in Africa where I got a salary was working for the United Nations World Food Program. So I, I got that job. I, I'd hitchhiked up to the border of uh, Sudan, Lokachogio, which I mentioned earlier. And through a friend of a friend, stayed in this Kenyan fellow's little hotel, Duca. And he introduced me to the different organizations at the border operating the Operation Lifeline Sudan. Mentioned to me about the World Food Program was the right place to go. I waited about a week until a Frenchman named Jean-Luc Stablot showed up for his visit from Nairobi. And I did my pitch to him to give me a job. And two months later, he gave me a job. And that job enabled me to then go into Sudan, work in almost every region of South Sudan, doing food drop, you know, receiving airdrops of food, distributing food leading convoys up to the Ethiopian border area and learning about logistics of aviation. And so a year into that, I, I decided I was done because I had about two months in a severely impacted area of Baragazal. And, and this was in 1994, where I had people dying at every food distribution. The people didn't have the strength to carry a 50 kilogram bag. And I'm like, I'm done. I, I don't want to have nightmares the rest of my life for this. And then the French guy promoted me to, they said, we don't want to lose you. You're going to be our new coordinator, liaison officer. So I suddenly became the guy at the base telling other food monitors where they're going to work and then deciding where all the planes went to distribute food. So I became highly involved in the air operation for the UN. I was like the guy deciding where all the big planes went all over the place. And I was only 28 years old at the time. And I was previously unemployed backpacker. It was kind of an interesting turn of events. And it was so fast forward from there, I, I ended up working in the Nuba Mountains as a, because I left the UN, I didn't really want to just do food relief. I wanted to help communities and do community development. So I, I left the food relief behind, joined Christian Aid, which is a UK charity. I was an advisor to the Nuba Mountains Relief Organization, which was a relief wing of the rebels fighting against the Bashir government at the time. And so my job was to help build capacity for, for them executing on their mission of bringing relief and rehabilitation to the people of Nuba Mountains. So I did that for some time and then had, got involved in trying to help set up the air operation or the air bridge into Nuba, you know, and in the process met a crazy Texan pilot who flew a couple planes up to Nuba for us, crashed his plane, and then later came back to me in 98 and said, hey, I found a plane I want to buy. Do you want to pitch in on it? And so me and my housemates in Nairobi, literally, we, we were four different people living in one house. We all pitched our money in towards this airplane and built what was called 748 Air Services. And that plane worked in Congo, bringing the Rwandis people you know, that were, that had flown, that had fled Rwanda after the genocide mm -hmm. and needed that we were bringing Rwandese refugees back to Rwanda 
basically the women and children of the, I think they were called the Banya Malenge, were they? I'm trying to remember the name of the, the guys that were killing Tutsis. Brought them back into Rwanda and then later to Somalia. All this time, I was still a relief worker in Sudan, so I couldn't be involved in running the aviation business until um, we eventually needed the plane to, to do a flight in Nuba. That's when this true conflict of interest came in where I had to quit all my relief jobs and become an aviation executive and run an aviation business. And so we went from one plane to about 10 planes over the course of the next two, three years, paid all the planes off, had a few plane crashes here and there. Nobody got hurt. And it was in within the first year of that aviation business is when we started doing the coffee business. So I was suddenly involved in being like the executive director of the aviation business and the executive chairman of the coffee shop business at the same time. So I was suddenly this serial entrepreneur, you know, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. And, and both of them took off for want yeah, of a better pun. I spent time in Nairobi and lived there and Java House was a very, it was always an eclectic mix of people. You had the locals, tourists and expats. It just worked. Everybody gelled together. And I wonder even if it was one of the first places for remote working. Yeah. Because people used to yeah. sit there on their laptop. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, we we put in the Wi-Fi and everyone said, so we need to figure out how to charge people for the Wi-Fi. And I said, no, because then if we charge them, then we're accountable for the quality of the Wi-Fi. Just give it free, right? Just give it free because we don't want our wait staff to be tech people. So let's just make sure we try to keep it on all the time. And then at the same time, we, let's not define to the customer what our business is. Let the customer define what the business is to them. So if someone wants to come for a cup of coffee at lunch hour, sit in one of our best booths that would normally feed four people in a busy lunch rush, and they want to just be on their laptop with a cup of coffee, that's okay because that person might come back for dinner and actually sit in that booth before people and eat dinner. So we found ourselves allowing a lot of slacker sort of freelancer people just to kind of like use the job as their hub. And yeah, you're right. It did actually become a home away from home and an office, temporary office for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And the food took off as well because I don't think there was McDonald's or anything like that, but what you served was definitely more upmarket and probably more nutritious, but maybe not to the taste of Kenyan people before this. Yeah, so we were we were exotic to the local clientele, but we were also something dearly missed by the people who wanted a good breakfast or a burger or a burrito or something like that. So, but you've Mentioning the locals, that was huge for us is to understand the strategy around them. Because when we first opened, there was a lot of, I mean, you know, historical racism that was deeply and institutionally embedded in the Kenyan psyche in the restaurant experience in Kenya. And so as the the founders of the, the restaurant, we you know, some of us were married, some of us had girlfriends who were African, some of us, all, but all of us worked in relief and development and were passionate about developing Africa. So suddenly we're in this industry that would have these 
customers, some of them white settlers, you know, the people from the, the what they call Kenya cowboys from Karen and these places, and they would come and expect to be treated special. And then you had also the Americans who overtipped, right? And so that suddenly created a problem. So you suddenly had this situation where you had this demand of special treatment and then people paying tips where the local customer, Kenyan customer, who would come into Java House would feel like they're being neglected. So we literally had to reverse train our staff and say, what do you do if a African family and a white family sits down at the exact same time? Who do you serve first? The African family. And, and help understand why that's important. Because I said, our future of our company and the Kenya we want to live in depends on serving that African family. So they get to feel and appreciate the middle-class experience of going out to a restaurant. But we had to fight for two, three, four years against this mentality of a special treatment. And also a lot of people who would misread that they thought they were being mistreated by the staff. And sometimes our staff were playing favorites to get the better tip. So it was hard for us to build this into a true African brand. So anyway, sorry for that story. No, 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 that's really interesting. And, and it is a true African brand for sure, but also staffed by Africans mainly. What was it like building your management team? So it's, it's hard. I mean, going from Anyone who's built a scalable business that is like, you know, multiple boxes of the same concept, right, will always say that it was harder to go from one shop to five than to go from five to 15, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of that is just building skills amongst your leadership team and then having the generate enough money to be able to afford expertise. I did a training exercise with our Kenyan staff one time to have everybody raise their hand who grew up eating in a restaurant. No one, right? So here you're starting from zero where no one's worked in a restaurant or like no one's actually eaten in a restaurant before. So what we had to do is say, okay, but how do you treat a person when they come in your home? Oh, well, first thing you do is you welcome them. You, you know, you give them the best seat in the house you bring them a cup of tea, you ask, you bring them a plate and you, you know, make them feel as much at home as you possibly can. I said, great. That's what we do in a restaurant. <laughs> so, and that's how we built it really is taking advantage of the inherently amazing African hospitality and letting people just be themselves with our customers and then slowly skip, add skills, technical skills as we grew from that. But Customers are very forgiving when the service is good and people are kind, right? You know, so that was kind of how we started and, and, and it grew from there. But the core was taking advantage of the core goodness in, in African people as, as great hosts and, and, and people. So, oh, yeah, the, that welcome. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Absolutely. And then quality. How do you maintain quality as you grew as well? Because no matter which Java house you went to, you always got the same. That was always something that was remarkable, I think. You could order whatever it was in one and it will taste exactly the same in the next. Yes. Well, a lot of it had to do with, I mean, it was harder when we had the first, let's say, 10 to 15 restaurants, right? Because the first 10 to 15, 
every store had its own chef, its own supply chain of things being delivered to it. And it was only when we actually built a commissary, which is a centralized facility for, let's say, we could we could do a sauce or we could marinate the steak or we could produce the standardized burger patties with one source of quality meat. And then and then it became more of how to finish and like how to cook the burger on site rather than each chef having to be someone who's into logistics of procuring all the food and and dealing with suppliers. We kind of took that out of the, the purview of the chef and it became sort of a centralized function that helped a lot. But a big thing about building on the quality was through growth. And this is one of the great successes of Java is, is we, we set up how, to, you know, again, people are coming into Java with very little skills. So first thing you want to do is you want to get good people on the HR side. So this is really an HR story. So we start by, I used to personally go through every CV. And this is, I mean, remember, we got to a size where we were 65 restaurants with 2,000 employees. Whoa. Right? So even when we were almost near that size, I was going through the CVs and I had a, a threshold, right, of what, the, you know, what their grades had to be. They had to be smart, right? And they had to be hospitable. And then when they came to the interview, they had to have a good reason why they needed that job. It wasn't because their parents wanted them out of the house. You know, it had to be because they had a brother who couldn't go to school unless they made money to help that brother. And so once they came in, most of them started as dishwashers. But in that three months as a dishwasher, they got to observe the operations of the rest of the restaurant. And so whenever I would go and visit one of our restaurants, I would always go straight to the dishwashing area. And people would always go, why are you talking to the dishwashers and you're not talking to the managers? Because I wanted to instill in them a dream. So I'd go into the dishwasher and say, hey, how long have you been at Java? They'd say, oh, I've been here a month. Great. So what are you training to be next? They're like, oh, I'm training to be a barista. Great. You know, I'm training to be a chef or cook. I'm training to be a waitstaff. And so we built that from the second they arrived, they already had a plan. They could see a trajectory where their salary as a waitstaff just goes, starts going up exponentially as they jump up the, the, the ladder. So when you build that enthusiasm for people to build their careers, number one, they don't leave your company, they stay with you. And it allows you to build more branches because you have an army of people ready to take the next job that opens up. And so that allowed our whole scale of Java succeeded by really paying and taking care of our staff, number one, making sure every year their lives got better right? Either through promotions or just raises. We gave every position a raise every year, no matter what. And then giving things like medical cover, pension, all these things that give people um, peace of mind so they could focus on their work. And that allowed us to grow, right? I mean, that was the secret. And so quality becomes easier to maintain when people are happy, right? Totally. But people, the financial security or the security isn't the only thing that keeps people happy though I mean I think there's probably more to it like what you said about speaking to the guy who's washing the dishes the minute you come in the store you treat people with respect yeah absolutely it's respect but it's also how does an individual embrace their day right so a lot of people think it's about showing up 
right? And so we used to try to help our staff. We used to try to help them understand that when you're at work, you're actually there to serve a bigger thing than yourself. And your job is part of this package. But if you're going to be here for eight hours, might as well do your best. Might as well figure out what winning looks like in this position in this restaurant. So what does winning look like for a barista, right? Quality, speed, right? Cleanliness, engagement with the customer. So always trying to tell them you got to keep thinking. So continuous improvement is not a corporate thing that you talk about in the boardroom. It's every single person has to embrace how do I get better at what I do each day, right? Because if you're just showing up, there's no purpose. Because we, I mean, the, the whole thing is dignity of work and sense of purpose is what is the key for the future of humanity if we're all going to actually have a functioning society, right? And so that's what we were trying to get each person to understand. Music to my ears, Kevin. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing, but also for you. So what kept you going? Hmm. I mean, I, so I, I'm... I'm a, at heart, I'm a hustler, right? Right. And like, I like winning. So for me, it's like determining what winning looks like, right? So if you're a football fan, you're going to look at how your team's doing in the standings. You're going to look at each player's statistics of how they each one is performing. And that is going to help determine to you who gets time on the pitch right? That's going to give you a determination of how to compete against another team that has other strengths. And so I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a geek for the numbers side of it too. So I would geek out on store margins. I would geek out on sales per staff member. I would geek out on all this different stuff because if you want to win at it, you've got to make money, right? You know, so it's not about your ego. Like I have all these restaurants. It's like, no, we're making money, staff are getting paid, you know, suppliers are getting paid, shareholders are getting a return, and customers are getting quality for money, right? So that's, for me, the game. And so that is a never-ending challenge. So it's easy to see what keeps me going. It's like, there's always something to do for all of those different aspects. And so there's never a dull moment. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine, never a dull moment. And you also diversified even further, we diversified the business by growing geographically, right? So we went into other countries and cities and so forth, but then we actually opened up new brands. And those ones were really more about just creating things that are missing from the market, right? So in, in Nairobi is not a family-friendly city. The, the parks are kind of run down and few and far between. Safaris are overpriced, it's hard to get out of town. <clears throat> so you've got a lot of concrete jungles. I mean, you've lived in some of those apartments that, you know, there's just a cement parking lot and cement. <laughs> and so, you know, so my thing was, again, how do we help Nairobi become a more livable city for families? So we, we brought in self-serve frozen yogurt, not a great concept in today's COVID, but it was a, you know, we were the first in the continent of Africa to bring in self-serve frozen yogurt, similar to places in America, those who know yogurt land and things like that. And we opened those and they worked out really well. And we grew that brand. And then we 
Then we opened up one that was sort of my own selfish need, which was good pizza in Nairobi. So we opened up something called 360 degrees pizza, but it was really an homage to classic Neapolitan pizza from Italy, from Naples area. We, we took three of our staff from Kenya and we sent them to Naples for a month, rented out an apartment and they trained with the, one of the leading pizzaiolos of Naples. We sourced our pizza oven in Naples. We sourced our flour for, for the, and, and Naples and everything. So we opened 360 and that was just for me because I wanted a great place to go out for pizza and, and, and wine and so forth. And that thing did, did, did well, but it wasn't really something you could grow because it was so chef driven that you couldn't easily replicate it. And so we didn't rush it. We didn't open another branch of that for almost three years. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And then you've also sold up or been bought out. Yes. So what was it like to go through something like that, to go from a place you wanted a cup of coffee to being in demand, I guess? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. 2011. So what, what happened is in 2010, I moved from, I was in California for about three years. We'd moved here, my wife and two kids. And, and then by, for one reason or another, we had to move back to Kenya. And, and so I promised my wife I would grow the business as fast as I could. Hopefully someone will buy it and then we can move back to California. So moved back in 2010, went from 10 branches to almost 16. Because remember, we were building one branch a year. So went from like 10 to almost 16 in about a year and a half. A private equity group just approached us and said, are you guys interested in selling? We said, well, we never thought about it, but uh, yeah, let's talk. And so we went through the process of negotiation with a private equity fund who was based out of the U.S., who had similar values about people and growth and took it up, took us almost a year to finalize the deal, but they succeeded in buying 90% of the shareholding of Java House. They retained me as the CEO. I retained 10% of my shares, but I sold another chunk of my shares in that transaction. And, and then I agreed to stick around for two more years while we grow the, grew the business more. So that's when we went from 16 shops to 65 in five years. You know, there was times we built, I think, 15 restaurants in four different cities in total in one year. Right. Wow. So we had a lot going on. And then in September 2017, we sold everything. The private equity fund I was with and, and myself both exited and sold to another private equity fund. And they took it over, over, well, I guess it's now three and a half years ago. And I've been retired here in California ever since. The extent of my complicated life now is Costco runs, dog walks, school runs, and some volunteer work and stuff here and there. But yeah, so it's been a, it's been quite a journey with, with that coffee shop from that one shop to here. So. It sure has. And yeah, I, and I think you've earned the right to rest a bit, Kevin, <laughs> get a bit tired, even like trying to comprehend what it was like, that growth, that exponential growth in those couple of years must have been stressful. Very. Yeah. Yeah. And weighed on you personally, as well as just your your life, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so I suppose, Kevin, you said you were a bit of a hustler. Yes. But is there is there more to the mindset of an entrepreneur? What's the secret to entrepreneurship in your opinion? Well, to give you an idea, I never even, even though I got I got a business degree from Pepperdine university in California in 87, December 87. And it was really because my dad 
thought I should get a business degree. I wanted to be a child psychologist. That's what I thought I wanted to do. Who knows? But, you know, I didn't really, we didn't, there was no such, no one studied entrepreneurship at business school in the eighties. Right. I didn't even know what it really was. I'd heard the word. So I didn't really know what it was. All I knew is that the coffee sucked in Nairobi. Right. And so we got to, we can figure this out. Right. And let's not, think we're experts let's always continually continuously try to understand what's best practice in this business we're in right so from a technical point of view from a business point of view so you need to have the willingness to continuously learn and remain open and then be willing to pivot and this is where i see a lot of people fail so often as they fixate on a framework of what success looks like to them and when they come up to a blocking point, they don't know how to just pivot and change. When in fact, that's the key is just remaining flexible and go, oh, okay, I guess we didn't, we didn't predict that. We just got to do this then. And I think a lot of, a lot of times that was the, the key for me to be successful is to be flexible and not always um, have a rigid idea of how this is all going to play out, right? You know, I told my wife we'd only be there a short time. We ended up being there six years, right? Unfortunately, but she saw that we need to do that as well. But I think it's, it's you gotta you gotta have a passionate purpose beyond want to get rich because that was never the the thing. Because if you if the money side of something is on the front end of the front of your mind, I find it really hard to imagine a young entrepreneur with that at the front of their mind. Because if I look back at myself, there was a lot of total ignorance that was our saving grace, right? If I knew then what I know now, I would have probably been hamstrung and fearful of doing some of the crazy shit we were doing, right? That was just plain stupid, right? And, but that that was... I think that was part of the magic, right? Was that ignorance and just going for it. And people respected that. And so when you see these overly polished brands that come out and they're like, oh, we're just a mom and pop shop, but you could tell there's big, you could see the big money behind them. You can tell there's private equity money behind them. This is a, this is a play that they're gonna try to grow this thing and then spin it off and sell it. It's like, you can already see they've overthought it in the actual organic soul of it. It's not even there right? The hunger. Yeah. It's like, where is that? So you gotta, you gotta have that. And so I, I really don't know the answer. Every entrepreneur's story is different, but that's mine. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess there's a, a risk and reward story that I hear from you there as well. If you're willing to take risks, yeah, there's a good chance they might not pay off, but if they do, then you'll keep going because you're building momentum. That's right. Yeah. And you, you, you also, it kind of helps not having much to lose. Right. So if you're going into it where you, you're still young and you've got energy and you think that, you know, you're not afraid to fail, it helps a lot. Right. I mean, now I'm 55. The fear of failure is deeper now, right. Than it was then. Back then you, the thought of failure didn't even hardly exist. It was just, just, let's just go for this. It'll be fun. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Because you would think in one way, with all the risks you've taken and that it's paid off, that your appetite would be greater somehow. You would think that. Yeah. But I, for me, it's not. I, for me now, it's more like, okay, I've, 
I've managed to achieve a certain thing that that's going to ensure that my kids and my grandkids will have some security. Let's not fuck that up. <laughs> <laughs> to be frank. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that, but it's like, why would I take a big risk now when I've like, the goal was never about money. Right. But I have built enough savings now that I can not have to worry about money. So now it's again, again, it's purpose, you know, dignity. Those things are still, that's the great challenge of, of humanity in my view is like finding purpose in your work, finding dignity and seeing dignity in other people's work. Right. It's mm. important. Mm. Mm. So yeah. Those- seeing that you're part of something greater. Yeah. Yeah, it is. No, it's vitally important. After the next coffee shop or pizza restaurant or whatever, just doesn't excite me anymore. Yeah, yeah. and fair enough. Yeah. But you traveled to Africa, I suppose, in the last century now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And things have changed utterly in that time. And you, you must have seen an incredible amount of growth and development in the cities and places you visited what things strike you most, Kevin, in the last 20, 30 years? Well, the the thing that's struck me the most is how quickly Africa moved from being, well, yeah, I'll talk about East Africa, and moved from being what many people think lost in the sort of dark ages, mired in a post-colonial identity crisis, where do we go from here, et cetera, to the the dawning of technology and information and watching how that gets embraced by by young people in Africa and how creative they are with it has without a doubt been the greatest miracle and change in Kenya. My wife's mother who lives up country in Kenya, she can get someone to send her, you know, $10 or 20 pounds over the phone in seconds. And they've been doing that for 10 years, right? I mean, we just started doing that in America a couple years ago, really, right? So they've been ahead of much of the rest of the world because of their creativity and their hustle as well. So I think the challenge for Africa will remain that issue around dignity because as people get, you know, agriculture used to provide that sense of dignity for many people. It was really not probably dignified feeling and purposeful feeling because it was such hard, it still remains hard work, but it gave people something to do. And now many people have gone to the cities, they have good educations and that dignified job isn't there. Mm. That remains the great challenge for Kenya and East Africa is how do they keep those restless masses of, of educated young people happy as they try to find dignity and meaning in their day-to-day lives. Wow, that's a, yeah. that's a big challenge too. A lot of the world, I think, even where we are at this particular point, because unemployment is probably rising again, and it's often the young who are at a disadvantage until right. the economies pick up again. Absolutely. I mean, there is something unique, though, about Africa is that People don't wallow in self-pity the way they do in the West. (laughs) You know, people kind of get on with it and have fun and party 
and make the most of every day and laugh despite the difficulties. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. So I think they're, they may be better suited than the young people of the West to, to navigate some of these difficulties. It's just the leaders need to reciprocate and really lead and make some difficult but unnecessary decisions for the, the citizens. So, so. Mm, fantastic. Okay, that's absolutely brilliant. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And as you're retired, I'm not going to ask how people connect with you. <laughs> but they can certainly read all about Java House and, and, and what you've been up to over the years if they'd like to and and visit a Java House even and drink some coffee, even if you're just transiting through Nairobi Airport. Exactly. Absolutely. So thank you so much for your time today. You're most welcome. It's been fun to, to dig some of the old stories out of the closet that I haven't uh, dusted off for a while. And, and, and you know, it's uh, ex- really exciting to participate in this and, and to see what you're trying to do to, to just kind of engage people with some of the more important issues of our time around work and purpose. Brilliant. Thanks, Kevin. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers.